You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. Easy going, easy come. Where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. All right. Hey, before we get started, let's hear from one of our sponsors. Parents and Guardians. Is your child finding it difficult to meet today's seemingly infinite academic demands? We have a solution for you. Our sponsor, the JEI Learning Center, believes that all children have unlimited learning potential. JEI's worldwide scientific educational system provides a learning program based on each child's individual needs and ability. The JEI Learning Center effectively meets your child's academic needs with well-qualified instructors combined with a proven method and low student-to-instructor ratio, thus making JEI the best option for your child's educational needs. Given that JEI is aligned with state and common core curriculum, the JEI system is your solution to end your child's struggles or to advance your child in math, reading, and language arts. Visit our sponsor at www.jeilearning.com. For those near Santa Clara and Livermore, make sure to ask for the Pod Save the Rest of Us discount. Sign up today and begin to carve out the future your child deserves. Laughter at disaster in a mob that stays Welcome back to Pod Save the Rest of Us. We are your hosts, Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We have been working in the off-season to bring you stories of 10 vastly different women who, through the resiliency, have beaten the odds and nevertheless persisted. We walked away from these interviews feeling inspired. We hope you do too. If you like the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us and help us get these stories out into the world. Enjoy the episode. In preparing for this episode, we sought insights from psychologist, Dr. Susan Pazak. She states, we are all capable of thinking about a person, event, circumstance, or situation with which we are angry, mad, and harboring resentment. If there is even one person or situation in our life that we hold unforgiveness toward, we are sabotaging our progress in reaching our goals. Any resentments, anger, and unforgiveness will take away peace and joy from our life. Without forgiveness, many individuals become depressed, anxious, or use alcohol and drugs to escape these feelings. It is time, this very moment, to make amends and move on. In this episode, our host, Elizabeth Stanley, offers a tale of hope and forgiveness as she attempts to examine the fatal stabbing of her brother. After 30 years, her process to move on and ideally move forward is revealed in this episode with raw emotion. High school for me was filled with school, friends, babysitting, and so much basketball, and yet never enough basketball. There's a saying, I eat, sleep, and dream basketball. This saying for me was so accurate. A little side note, (laughs) I was always dunking in my dreams. What great dreams those were. That was until I woke up. Anyway, back to the story. In October of my senior year, I was very focused on having a great basketball season. I was attending any and every possible workout. My team and I were going to have an amazing basketball season 
and I was going to earn a basketball scholarship. The harsh reality of life happens while you're busy making plans was for sure not on my radar at all at that time. But plans do have a way of being interrupted, don't they? And so that was my very well-defined and contained life. That was, of course, until it was tragically interrupted on October 21st, 1983. That day was a Friday, and I still can remember so much of that day, and moreover, that night. I, as usual, attended a workout before and after school. I may have gone to class that day, but probably not. I did go to open gym, of course. After open gym, I ran home and I showered. I then drove to a friend's house and began my overnight babysitter shift. With the kids, we played, we ate, and we played some more. That was until it was bath time and then bedtime, of course. The kids were wiped out and fell to sleep very quickly, but I, as usual, did not. I've always been quite the night owl. It's been the curse, of course, for anyone who's ever had to share a room with me. Night is the time my mind just won't shut off. Too many thoughts run through my mind. Far too many. I knew this would be my fate long before my head hit the pillow, as I was not at home. I've always been an even worse sleeper when I'm not in my own bed. This night, however, seemed more strange than usual. The same, but somehow different. I had a doomsday feeling to add to my sleeplessness. As that night ticked slowly by, my uneasy feeling did not go away. So when the phone rang, though not surprised, I could have never been prepared for the bad news that would follow. My sister was on the other line calling to tell me that my brothers were in a fight. Dio, my oldest brother, had stitches in his arm and would be just fine. But Raymond, the middle child, who was a month shy of his 20th birthday, and who was also, I might add, my absolute favorite sibling. My sister had called to tell me Raymond had been stabbed in the spleen and he was in the operating room where the medical professionals were doing everything to stop the bleeding. Raymond was in serious and grave condition. The doctors were not hopeful. Panic and pain filled my whole being. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't leave to be with my brother. The kids were upstairs sleeping. It's not like I could just wake them up, throw them in the car, and then hang out with them in the waiting room. I just had to sit by the phone, wait for further updates, hope for the very best. My worry and my inability to act created so much distress. At six o'clock the next morning, my sister called again. Her voice told me everything, so I'm certain I was not listening as she told me Raymond had died in the OR. My brother who always protected me, supported me, and motivated me was gone. I remember one year after a basketball tournament championship game, Raymond raved about my performance. He couldn't compliment me enough. Soon after his adoring praise, the awards were announced. Unexpectedly, I had won the MVP award. When I went to accept the trophy, Raymond ran to me and gave me one of the best hugs ever. He didn't care that his actions were not the norm, and everybody would think, you know, what a dork he is hugging his sister. He just didn't care. He was proud and he wanted to make sure I knew it. That's who Raymond was for me and I just learned that he was gone. Forever. Losing a loved one is something one never fully heals from. I mean, never. 
Although my brother was murdered over 30 years ago, there's still hold my heart and I still cry when I think about the loss of my brother. So naturally, when I first began to process Raymond's murder, I was riddled with deep sorrow and incredible hate. I needed his murder to suffer the full weight of the justice system. It wasn't until I was about in somewhere in my 30s when I was able to let go of the deep hate I felt towards Uriel, the one who murdered my brother. Now, for the last 10 years, I've turned the murdering of my brother into a hopeful tale of a youthful mistake by this young man turned into a life of love. Many believe that youthful errors and shortcomings can beckon great growth and new perspectives. More directly stated by Kilroy Oldster, living is a process of developing oneself. Without experiencing pain from disconcerting periods of our lives, we would be a different person, perhaps a lesser person. If this is true, Uriel, you were given an opportunity to carve out a life of greatness. You asked the court for mercy. You claimed you had learned your lesson. You empathetically declared in the court that you would use your lifeline for good, not evil. I set out on this journey of trying to find out who is the person now who murdered my brother then. I had hoped, Uriel, that you were out there doing good things in this world. I quite honestly envisioned you working for youth organizations, sharing your story. The story would go something like this. I am Uriel. When I was a a 19-year-old young man, I was on a very destructive and violent path. Along this path, I made a horrible decision to use a weapon to resolve a youthful conflict. From that awful decision, I stabbed a young man to death. I took a son from his parents. I took a brother from his siblings. I ended a life of great potential. In my mind, Uriel continues, and he would say, This horrible decision could have ended my own life's potential, but I did not allow this to happen. I took full responsibility for my awful mistake, and from it I learned to value life, every life. At the moment of realization that the judge gave me a chance at redemption, I took it and I never looked back. I went to college. I obtained a degree. I surround myself with good people. I've raised children who are doing great in the world. And more importantly, I'm doing everything I can in my professional and personal life to reach one, teach one. If I can save one person from heading down a road of violence and destruction, the very road I was on so long ago, I'll be able to forgive myself for one mistake I made in my youth. I could look back on my life and know I not only learned from my horrible decision, but I've gone on to be a kind, loving, caring, and productive citizen in society. You see, listeners, I started season two hoping to hear the young man who killed my brother served his far too generous and short sentence, used his second chance at being a good person in the world. I really wanted to learn that my brother's senseless death led to so much good. I so wanted to hear that the person learned from his awful mistake, and made a conscious decision to bring love to others. I had hoped that he truly learned his lesson. When researching my brother's murder, I learned that when Uriel was sentenced, he said, I wish I was the one dead. I feel so awful. As he should, of course. We all would agree with that. After I read this, I was feeling optimistic, though, that this young man had learned his lesson and he probably turned his life around. It really seemed possible to me. A philosopher once said, we should live to transform, help people, lift others, change lives. 
I believe if my brother's killer did this with his life, then my brother's murder would not be in vain. For this reason, more than any, I really wanted to hear that this man was living his life lovingly. So I set out to see if I could track down the person who killed my brother. Full admission, I knew so little about my brother's murder. I was still in high school, so everybody tried to protect me. I was removed from our house and was not allowed at any of the court appearances. I was removed from the house because Dion was a witness and he was being threatened to not testify. And from what I'm told, they were all in a gang. One day I recall a suspicious car driving very slowly past our house. And it was that evening I was told I should find a safer place to stay and get back to a normal life. A normal life. Like that was possible. But I have to admit, the prospect sure sounded appealing. I left that night not ever asking any questions about my brother's murder. I'm not too proud about that. Sometimes I would overhear court-related stories, but beyond the initial stories and the sentencing, I was told nothing and I asked nothing. It was easier for me to stick my head in the sand and forget this drama as best I could. So most of what I know about my brother's death, I just learned when researching for this podcast and through my very old fading memories after initially hearing of Raymond's murder. Speaking of research, Yuba County Police and Sheriff's Office, you offered me no help. I hit roadblock after roadblock. Every person to whom I spoke declared, you are not next of kin, so I cannot give you any documents related to this case. To which I would say, Ma'am or sir, I am Derek Raymond's sister. After such declaration, each department would say, no matter who you are or who you think you are, you are not on record as next of kin. Yes, I said, but both my parents are listed as next of kin and they both have passed away. To which they would continue. The request, I'm afraid, has died with them. Super sensitive people, clearly. So, where did I get my research, despite my roadblocks? Some from my older sister. She had attended some of the court hearings and had more intimate conversations with my brother, Dion. My niece had paid an online service to get the murderer's full name and date of birth. A friend, Ron, was able to get a possible current address and phone number for me. My daughter and I had found old archived articles in the Appeal Democrat, and Kathy Brown found the same in the Gridley Herald archives. Lastly, friend Kendra picked up the court documents. I'm so thankful for that, and I'm thankful that those were finally released to me. I was never able to see the police records, the coroner records, or the death certificate. This makes me a little sad because what I learned while researching with my daughter, there's so much I don't know then and still don't know today. And there's so much I want to know today, despite not wanting to know anything in 1983. The young man who murdered my brother in cold blood is Uriel Escabel Cuevas. I learned his name from my 24-year-old daughter. Hearing his name proved to spark a visceral reaction. I really did not expect it. I was so choked up when my daughter had found the archived articles about my brother's death. So often I have read stories about other people's strife. It was so unnerving to read the old articles about my own family. It was a gut-wrenching feeling for sure. So, now I have the name of the person who killed my brother. Now maybe I could track him down. I could go talk to him. I was so close to hopefully 
learning that Uriel is doing great things with his life. Having his name, unfortunately, was not the momentum spark I had hoped it to be. During my continued search for answers, more research was found. We learned that Jose had broken probation by using a lethal weapon to seriously injure another man. Jose was deported to Mexico, but soon returned. He was then found and mandated to serve jail time. In our research, my daughter and I learned that Uriel served his far too short sentence, but may have not learned his lesson. I deduce this as he was arrested for a DUI just shortly after being released from the correctional facility. From these two articles, unfortunately, I was starting to think I was not going to learn that Uriel was living his best life. Optimism for me was fading. From the court documents, I learned that Charles Clement was excluded from testifying. Why? I don't know. I don't even know who he is. I also learned that Joseph Leroy Toombs, Frank Miranda, Penny Barnes, Billy J. Cock, and Mark Simmons all testified for the people. For my brother. Again, I don't even know who these people are. However, they were helping to convict my brother's killer. All I could think was, why don't I know these people? These names just made me feel even more empty inside. I know so little. I chose to know so little about the murder of my brother. I feel so inadequate. But more to reveal, so let's move on. And I quote, Uriel Cuevas was sentenced for the crime of violation of Section 187 of the, of the Penal Code of the State of California. End quote. Section 187 of the Penal Code is the California Murder Law. Let me repeat that. Section 187 of the Penal Code is the California Murder Law. The court record reads, again, I continue, I, Bill Cock, state on information and belief that defendant Uriel Escabel Cuevas did, in the county of Yuba, on or about October 21st, 1983, commit a felony, namely violation of section 187 of the penal code of the state of california to wit did willfully unlawfully and with malice uh, a forethought murdered derek raymond romero a human being the defendant used a deadly or dangerous weapon to wit he used a knife end quote in short uriel with the knife you murdered my brother from the court documents i was very surprised to learn that jose Uriel's brother was being tried for attempted murder of my older brother, Dion. Because Raymond was killed and Dion only received stitches in his arm, I never really gave too much thought to Dion's plight at the time. This is not only because of the depth of pain a murder creates, but also because Dion would not allow it. He did not think his little cut rose to the level of sympathy. Dion's physical pain was incidental at best. The emotional pain, however, he's experienced then and still does to this day, goes much deeper. Dion was hurt, yes, but as a big brother, he he has more guilt than I can even ever imagine. It is because of this hurt and guilt, Dion is unwilling to share the story of this horrible night. Still, to this day, he has never spoken to me about Raymond's death and and the attempted murder on his own life. I'm sure if today Uriel was working to make the world a better place, 
Dion too would feel just a little bit better about Raymond's death, and maybe, just maybe, it would assuage some of his deep, dark guilt. Not only does Dion have guilt, but he and my whole family still have much antipathy for the plea deal Uriel and his brother were able to strike with their lawyers and the district attorney. On March 26, 1984, the Honorable C. Dawson Jr. called the court in session. Frederick A. Schroeder, the DA, was standing with my family. Dennis J. Buckley, public defender, stood with client Uriel, and Terry Pelton stood with Jose, who served as his public defender. They all acknowledged that each defendant was ready to enter his guilty plea. Before sentencing, my father was given a chance to speak. These men took my son's life. I ask that appropriate justice be rendered, end quote. It was not. Before I read the plea bargain, I wish to remind you that Uriel was a 19-year-old man. He was not a youth. So what was the sentence? Quote, The People versus Uriel Escabel Cuevas is hereby sentenced to the California Department of Corrections on March 26, 1984, and ordered housed and programmed at the Youth Authority as an adult offender. You are sentenced to the term of four years for a violation of Section 192-1 PC voluntary manslaughter, end quote. Yes, you heard that right. Uriel, the 19-year-old man who, who was sentenced for murdering another man, was to serve his sentence at a youth authority facility. He did so at the youth authority facility in Sacramento, California. So as you can deduce, Uriel was really, absolutely thrown a lifeline. Uriel murdered a young man. Then he was given a very light sentence in a correctional facility for use, not even a real federal prison. He showed regret at the time of his sentencing. So I ask, what has he done with the second chance? A chance my brother did not have. Well, in full disclosure and humility, I can't really say for sure. I can say he was released after his four-year sentence and soon after he was picked up for a DUI. Beyond that, I'm not 100% certain. I tried to call the numbers I received. There was no answer. And from what I gather, it was a really good thing they did not answer. The day after I called Uriel's presumed telephone numbers, my sister said, the family is still gang-affiliated. She knows this because my brother Dion gets a visit every now and again from the FBI. The visit coincides with the death in the Cuevas family or circle of friends. You see, Dion is considered a person of interest in the deaths because it's reasonable that a brother would seek revenge for, him, for his brother's death. So every now and again, the FBI arrive at my brother's doorstep asked Dion for his alibi, and then they rule him out. Of course he's ruled out. As a family, we've been filled with sorrow, not feelings of revenge. Anyway, from these random deaths and visit to Dion, we surmise that the family is still connected to shady people. My sister urged me to not pursue Uriel. In fact, she urged me not to do this episode at all. I consider both her urgings but I went forward with this episode anyway. 
My brother deserves to have his story told. At the time of Raymond's death, I was definitely too young to process the full essence of his murder. But I can handle the messiness of it now, I think. Raymond took risks for me, like publicly hugging me. Not a cool thing to do. So I can risk some for him now, too. No, I can't say I got out of this back-seeking hunt much of what I sought. But I did get some of the many holes to this story filled. I did not learn that Uriel is doing great in the world. He's not sharing a story of youthful poor decisions ending in lessons learned. I didn't learn that with his second chance, Uriel is living the best life and spreading hope, faith, and love. Yes, it does sadden me that nothing good has ever come of my brother's senseless murder. I am sad I cannot report to you that from this horrible incident, much good has come. One thing I'm familiar with when it comes to my brother's death, without question, is sadness, deep and profound sadness. Uriel, I don't know what you have done with your life, though it does not appear to me that you were wise enough to take full advantage of your second chance, but I'm opting, despite evidence otherwise, to believe that someday I will learn that you actually did learn your lessons and you're actually doing good in the world. I will hold on to hope that you are living a good life because I really believe that is the least you owe my brother. This season is about resiliency. My mom always claimed that I was her easiest child. In her words, it was like God knew I could not handle another difficult child, so she gave me you. I was the youngest of five kids. Of course my mom needed a break. Both my parents always said that they worried about me the least. I remember my dad once saying, you're always able to handle yourself. No matter what happens, it's as though you are less negatively affected by the bad stuff. Pretty much when I was young and every time I heard that, I had a meh attitude about such claims. I had that meh attitude until I was studying human behavior in college. It was then I began to understand what my mom was talking about. She was talking about resiliency. The first research on resiliency was published in 1973 by Emily Werner. She was one of the early scientists to use the term resilience. She studied a cohort of children from Kauai, Hawaii. Kauai was quite poor, and many of the children in the study grew up with alcoholic or mentally ill parents. Most of the parents were also out of work. Werner noted that the children who grew up in these detrimental situations Two-thirds in their later teen years exhibited destructive behavior. This included chronic unemployment, substance abuse, and out-of-wedlock births, in most cases as teenage girls. However, one-third of these youngsters were found not to exhibit destructive behavior at all. Werner called this group resilient. Thus, resilient children and their families were those who, by definition, demonstrated traits that allowed them to be more successful than non-resilient children and families. Some children thrive well when responding to adversity. I have thought about my parents' claims about me throughout my adult lifetime. Why didn't the murdering of my brother break me? It sure could have, but it didn't. I have chosen to hold on to the good my brother brought to my life and let the hate and destruction go.
I remember a dream I had my junior year of college. It, it was then, and it still is so vivid. It was the first time I dreamt that my brother was indeed dead. You see, prior to this, and some of you may, this may sound familiar, but I would go to sleep knowing my brother had died. But in my dreams, every single time, I would go, oh, thank goodness, it was just a dream that he was dead, only to wake up and learn that he had indeed been murdered. I hated waking up to the reality that my brother indeed was gone. Anyway, back to the dream. My brother and I were hanging out in this dream. He had come back from the dead to talk to me. He was explaining to me why he had to die. He said, I sacrificed myself. I wanted to bring our family closer together. You guys should be holding on to each other even tighter. But that's not happening. And he was right. We were then and still are on our own path going in complete opposite directions. Raymond also said, I guess it's okay because you'll be just fine. He was right. I was okay, even alone. He knew I'd be okay, as did my parents. A part of resiliency is finding people who help you along the way. Resilient people do not surround themselves with people who bring them down. A part of resiliency is finding people who will help you along the way. This season is about women overcoming life obstacles. The pain of not having Raymond in my life the last 30-something years has been enduring. Uriel cut short my time with my absolute favorite sibling. In this episode, I've tried to share how my life was interrupted by this insidious murder. I have to say, working through season two, thankfully, has helped me to really put my brother's death in perspective. Jill's episode, in fact, really hit home for me. A death broke her family. Her brother was sentenced. The family grew closer together. Proving my brother right, death can make a family function somehow without them. Ashley reminded me that everyone has challenges, but humans adapt. Maybe Raymond's death did not make my family grow closer together, but maybe it gave me empathy and has allowed me to be there for others, just as people have been there for me. Stephanie reminded me that we are all broken, but we can be strong in those broken places. I hope I'm stronger because of my brother's tragic death. Amber reminds me to keep building the life I want. I control my happiness, no matter the characters who attempt to play a destructive part. And from Chloe, I'm ever reminded that I make me. I am not the sum total of everyone's perceptions. I define my strengths and weaknesses, and I can soar as high as I choose. Just as the many women have shared in Season 2, I know I've learned from my many life's challenges. Through my life, I've worked to move forward from my brother's murder. Raymond's death has filled me with an ineffable amount of hate and sadness, which could have eaten me alive, but I endured. I have to believe I did so because of my stubbornness my resilient nature, and my determination to, nevertheless, persist. Thank you for allowing me to share my brother's story. I love and miss you greatly, Raymond. I hope you're resting in peace. To learn more about grieving and ways where we can help one another, 
please visit helpguide.org. That's www.helpguide.org. Thanks a lot. This episode was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We want to thank our contributors, Hunter Lewis and Robert Stanley for theme music, Danny Burns for transition music, Justice Stanley for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for web design, Caprice Hall for graphic artwork, and our sponsors, Solid Lotion Bars and the JEI Learning Center. If you wish to find us, you can find us at www.podsavetherestofus.com as well as on Instagram at podsavetherestofus. You can also find us on Twitter at Save the Rest of Us. We'd like to remind you to please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in. The end of this episode also signals the end of Season 2. We had the absolute pleasure of speaking to nine amazing women and then sharing their wisdom with our awesome listeners. We have enjoyed Season 2 immensely, and we have learned so much. It is our hope that you're able to say the same. We thank everybody for listening and taking this journey with us. To Ashley, Jill, Chloe, Kate, Quist, Amber, Layla, Stephanie, and Jamie, we offer you a debt of gratitude for allowing us to share your story of resiliency. See you all next season. If you have any episode ideas for season three, feel free to email them to us. Until next season, please take care.